Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast highlights the critical work of pathologists and the integral part pathology plays in medicine and healthcare. Welcome to our latest podcast. This episode is part one of a two-part discussion surrounding PCR and rapid antigen testing. It's my pleasure to introduce and speak with Dr. Michael Harrison. He is the Managing Partner and Chief Executive Officer of Sullivan Nicolaides Pathology, which is one of Australia's largest diagnostic testing laboratories. He was also my predecessor as an RCPA president from 2015 to 2017. Dr. Harrison is an influential and respected national figure with a long history of service to pathology, holding numerous key professional and governmental positions. You've been in the media a lot, Michael, and you've done a lot of speaking and you've done a lot of thinking, obviously, about the rolling out of COVID testing and what the pandemic means to the the diagnostic laboratory setting. There's been a lot of talk in the media recently about Australia's COVID-19 testing strategy and which of the increasing variety of tests are appropriate in our current setting. Now, Michael, as CEO of one of Australia's largest diagnostic testing laboratories, we thought it would be a good opportunity to get you on the podcast to discuss what test is recommended and what test isn't recommended. Sure. So so really, COVID came along at the end of uh, a development of different testing strategies for other respiratory viruses. And uh, SARS clearly before that, but we, we were doing a lot of testing for things like influenza virus and respiratory syncytial virus. And we'd established uh, very proficient laboratories doing molecular pathology testing, looking for the RNA of those viruses. And so it was pretty easy for us to switch from influenza testing to COVID testing uh, using the PCR technique. And the main challenges were finding how that assay worked, finding the attributes of the assay, what were the best specimens to use, and clearly it was going to be a respiratory specimen. And and then uh, some of the nuances in relation to, well, how do you actually scale something like this up to the levels that we've had to scale it up to? And and, and everything is uh, at least a, a log level greater than what we'd previously been doing and more than that. So, you know, in our highest activity time during the last flu epidemic, which was 2019, we were doing up to 2,000 tests a day here in my laboratory diagnosing flu A or flu B. This time with COVID, we've, we've got to over 15,000 COVID tests in a day. So it's, it's another scale altogether. And, and certainly those numbers have really tested the whole the whole laboratory infrastructure to 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 be able to do that do that type of testing. Yes, that's right, because uh, the laboratories have generally been involved in certainly in the community pathology area in actually collecting the sample and also then transporting the sample. The sample then is received in the laboratory into a central laboratory because, these are highly specialised tests that do need to be done in a, in a laboratory with specialised equipment, but also specialised expertise. And therefore, centralisation has been a feature of COVID-19 testing, uh, as it was for influenza testing previously. And then uh, the issue then was making sure that we could get that result out to where it needed to be used in a rapid time. And there were some real changes that occur in, in that area too. 
So the, the first thing that we did look at was the type of specimen that we needed. And we'd traditionally been using uh, nasopharyngeal swabs for influenza testing and other respiratory viruses. And quite early on in the COVID epidemic, we were aware that the Chinese were using mainly throat swabs. So we looked at a throat swab versus a nasopharyngeal swab versus a combined swab. And very quickly, it was quite obvious that the most sensitive test was actually the one that used a, a combined specimen, so throat and nasopharyngeal. So that's, that's what we've actually landed on, and that's where we've stayed on too. So, so the testing we're talking about, the platform is just PCR. That's a, a well-known platform of testing that we've been using for a long time with influenza testing, et cetera. So it wasn't actually having to reinvent the wheel to get the, um, the PCR testing up and running. Is that right? No, that's right, Michael. Uh, uh, early on, um, most laboratories that started doing COVID testing actually had to develop their own assays and it's only further on into the pandemic that commercial assays have become available and we had to determine which were the best targets to look for and a lot of laboratories have chosen a target which we know is well conserved and we use e-gene target to detect the COVID-19 virus Uh, but then we use another target when you do get a positive result uh, to confirm and that's we use an n-gene target for that. Some, some assays have both targets in them, and there are pros and cons in relation to that. But overall, if you looked across the breadth of COVID-19 PCR testing in Australia and New Zealand, the, the level of sensitivity and specificity of those assays has really been really excellent. And we are so good uh, now that we can pick up the remnants of an infection that was several months ago in, in some people. And that in, in itself can create a problem because you'll find somebody who's persistently positive by the PCR test at very low levels, but there's no doubt that that's a true positive. Uh, and yet we know that at that stage of their infection, they're non-infectious and therefore not a, they're not a risk to people. So, so the beauty of using the e-gene that you described and the n-gene, you mentioned they're conserved. So with these change in the nature of COVID-19 and the new variants of concern coming out, we haven't found that those genes have been altered dramatically. That's correct, Michael. Uh, And every time uh, a new variant is identified and the actual sequence, uh, uh, nucleic acid sequence of that variant is determined, uh, people will look at their assays and look at the actual probes that you're using for their assay and and determine whether uh, there are any issues. And and to date, uh, that hasn't been a, an issue with the PCR assays, that, uh, that they've been very good at detecting the different variants. But you do have that capacity to fine-tune as sort of on the, on the fly as required. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Now, we've, you've been talking about you know, the, the volume and the, the log increase in numbers of, of tests. And um, of late, in New South Wales, they've been doing 100,000 tests per day. So that's record numbers, and, and it's all the gold standard PCR. What is it about the PCR testing platform that enables that scale of testing? It's not as automated a process as, say, a chemistry test uh, done in a big laboratory with with uh, track systems and and that sort of level of automation. But there are components of automation within molecular pathology that allow people to do this sort of testing on scale. And if we hadn't been able to adapt our systems to allow for that, 
then we would never have been able to test the number of samples that we've tested and that would have had a very significant impact on our ability to control the pandemic. So we do have automated tube uh, sorters. Uh, we also have automated extraction robots. So the first part of the PCR test requires that the RNA of interest from a variety of sources, viruses, needs to be extracted out of the sample. The sample itself, being a respiratory uh, sample, has a lot of extraneous material in it. It's got a lot of mucus and, and other things. And we know that that significantly impacts or interferes with the PCR reaction. Uh, early on in the in the pandemic, we did try to see if we could actually do a PCR without doing an extraction uh, by using uh, proteinase and heat to release the virus and to try and neutralise some of these other competing substances, but it didn't work. So we had to continue with extraction. And this is the way that uh, most PCR is performed. It's performed on an extracted sample uh, that where most of the interfering substances are removed. So once you've you've actually done the extraction process, and that takes several hours in an automated platform in a in an extraction robot, uh, you can load up a series of of samples, maybe hundreds of samples, and the robot will actually process those through. And most of those systems use magnetic beads to actually bind uh, the the RNA and then allow that to be taken out of the the, uh, specimen and all the other material is then discarded and and only the RNA that you're interested in is then submitted for PCR testing. And then it goes through the standard PCR process. And again, uh, that's usually done as a batch and batch size can be 100 or it could be 400 or 500, depending on the the architecture of those PCR instruments. But certainly, uh, once you get to the point where you've gone through extraction and you've gone into a PCR analyzer, a amplification system, you you do get significant economies of scale. And by goodness, we needed that because a lot of laboratories around Australia and New Zealand have been doing thousands of these tests a day. And the only way that we could actually uh, maintain the throughput so we didn't get a backlog, but also provide results in a clinically relevant time frame uh, was to work all day and all night, basically. And that's, uh, that's what laboratories have been doing. So you've been describing quite a small process of the actual PCR test, haven't you? You've been just describing the the, the RNA uh, retrieval process. But can you put that into the broader context from the person who comes to the drive-through COVID swab testing to the the clinician or the public health unit that gets a result? Uh, The the first thing that we need to know is exactly who the person is and document that. So... uh, identification of the individual is really critical and then we need to get their consent uh, and tell them what we're doing and then collect the specimen and you need a trained person to collect the specimen uh, from a a good respiratory specimen a combined throat and nasopharyngeal swab we don't go all the way back to the back of the nose now Uh, we found that you can go to mid nose uh, mid nasal and that's a good sample uh, but you need somebody who's trained to do that. And, but more importantly, you need somebody who's trained to use PPE, personal protective equipment. So even if that person that they're testing uh, has COVID, they are protected from becoming infected. Uh, and that's a really important 
issue. So the collectors who do that need to be trained in not only collecting the specimen but in using PPE and in particular after they've used the PPE and taking it off in a way that they don't contaminate themselves. Uh, and in fact, the story in relation to PPE use by pathology collectors in our countries has been really good, that uh, we've, we've escaped infection of those people because people have been able to use that well. Uh, and if it's used properly, it's, it's almost 100% effective. So once the specimen's collected uh, from the patient and it's properly labelled and the patient is identified, it's then transported to the laboratory and then uh, it gets sorted uh, and then it goes through the, the RNA extraction process, the PCR process itself, the PCR traces, each PCR trace of each sample is read by a, a scientist and the positive traces are identified. They're, they're usually quite obvious, but in some circumstances you may have to do uh, an additional test, say, of looking for a different target because the pattern is not unequivocally positive. And then the result is transmitted. And these days, there's been a significant change to the way that patients are involved in this process in that the majority of people will get their result text to them, uh, which is really a, that's a, a very big change in medicine and in pathology in, in our countries. So we've used the SMS process to be able to send people a negative result. And, and that's really important if they're waiting a negative result, not only just because they want to know that they're negative, but also they may be able to then come out of uh, isolation. But that's been a, a very significant change. And it also, it has uh, an, a significant impact on the turnaround time of the test result. So if you can communicate the test result very efficiently, an SMS seems to be the most efficient way to do that. It's interesting when we first implemented that process. We did it because we wanted to let people know what their result was and that it was negative. Uh, we didn't want people ringing up and blocking up our switchboards, which was happening all the time, and people getting anxious about how long it, it may be taking. But we also could see that if we use that sort of mechanism, you could do it as soon as the test result was available. So we, we had a discussion here about whether we should actually send out SMS negative results in the middle of the night. And there was a general feeling that we could uh, and people would be okay with that. And in fact, we know now that they're more than okay with that. People are happy to get a negative COVID result at one o'clock in the morning, for example, and even if it wakes them up. So, so that's been um, been quite a change in the, the laboratory having a direct relationship with patients and it's been driven by COVID. Do you see that yeah. happening in other, other aspects as well? Look, it probably will. Um, because the test result was going to be negative in the vast majority of cases, in fact, uh, the negative rate in, in Australia is about 999 out of 1,000. And you don't really need too much interpretation of a negative result. You may need some instructions from a GP or a public health physician who says, look, until uh, you wait for the full incubation period of of the infection, you, you may still be turned positive and therefore you'll have to have another test, for example. But apart from that, there isn't a lot of complex interpretation of a negative result, which is very different to other pathology test results. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what you're dealing here with really one test. So you've described a, a lot of 
activity going on behind the doors and in, in, in the laboratory. How, how have the staff, the large numbers of staff working large numbers of hours, how have, how have they managed over the last 18 months? They are very aware of the critical role that they're playing in controlling the pandemic, that they know that the testing that they're doing is the thing that's directing the whole of the public health response to COVID-19, whether it's isolating people or identifying contact points or, or even doing things like telling people that they have to go and be admitted to hospital because uh, they've been identified as being positive. So they're aware of the significance of what they're doing. From their perspective, it's business as usual. They've done this sort of testing for years. Uh, it's just they've probably never done it at this scale. And the other thing that's really uh, quite different in this uh, circumstance is the fact that the the volumes change so much. We have these things we call surges now. So you could be going along at a certain amount of testing activity and then the next day because something has turned up uh, in the community uh, and there's been publicity about it, you might have a tenfold increase in the amount of testing that's been done. And that's something we have never seen before. This is a really unusual circumstance. So People have to be really uh, nimble. While we have to have the ability to cope with surges in the laboratory, it will often mean that people will say, well, look, because this is happening, I'll stop doing this other work and I'll transfer to this area. So we've had a whole lot of people who've had the ability to work, work across different areas of the laboratory and accept that there'll be times when other work has to be basically put aside while we're coping with our COVID surge. And that's happening not just in the laboratory where we're doing the testing, but it's also happening in collection too. So uh, where, you know, you, you suddenly get these, these huge numbers of people turning up to be tested uh, because they're being given information about a risk episode that's occurred. It's, it's difficult to write a roster for that sort of uh, eventuality, <laughs> isn't it? And I suppose one person doing the test can only test X number of people per hour. And if you've got 10 times as many people there, it's going to blow out queues and things. And that must be difficult to manage on the um, on the yeah. ground there. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, the, probably the biggest rate limiting step is just those manual steps. So once you get beyond those and you get into, say, a semi-automated area of testing, like the, the RNA extraction or PCR uh, actual assays, it's not too bad, but it's the data entry of all the details of the individuals. It's the actual physical process of the collection of the sample. Uh, and those sorts of things are the things we found ourselves most stressed about. And I'd have to say my observation as we've been going on through this journey is that we were really under the pump to start off with. Uh, We really found the sort of volumes that we were doing early on in the pandemic difficult to manage, and there were a few times when we got did get behind by a day or so. Now we're doing many times those sorts of volumes, and you wouldn't even notice it. We describe it as no sweat. Well, it's, and that's a, a credit to just the sort of the tweaking of the systems and things like yeah, that. Yeah, but, but those those initial steps are so important. You don't want to be texting the wrong person the wrong result. You know, if you if you if you haven't got the right patient details right at the very beginning, so crucial steps to get right at the at the beginning. Yes, that's right. 
You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut Podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Michael J. For the latest RCPA updates, make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter.